Joe Cadwell, the host of the show. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with author Kim Kelly about her new book titled Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Kim's book is a remarkable interweaving of past and present and brings America's rich and bloody labor history to vivid life. Her book comes at a time of economic reckoning in America. From Amazon warehouses to Starbucks coffee shops, interest in organized labor is at a peak not seen in more than half a century. We'll open our conversation by learning why Kim transitioned from writing about heavy metal and country music for Vibe magazine to covering worker rights issues. Next, we'll discuss the significant role women have played in the labor movement as we dig into the stories of historical figures such as Lucy Parsons and Mother Jones. Later, we'll look into the recent win for workers at an Amazon warehouse in New York and what it means for organized labor in the years to come. And we'll wrap up our conversation by understanding the connection between the struggle for rights for people with disabilities and the labor movement. To learn more about Kim and her work, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode or visit the Grit Nation podcast website at gritnationpodcast.com. And now on to the show. Kim Kelly, welcome to Grit Nation. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for taking your time to be on the show today. I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, your recent book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. And before we do that, though, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who Kim Kelly is and, and how you got interested in writing a book about labor history? Sure. I, I suppose I got interested in writing about labor in general the way, the way that a lot of people get interested in labor I helped organize my workplace. I was back in 2015, I was working at Vice, where I was actually the heavy metal editor. That's Vice Magazine? But yeah, well, Vice Media is a whole, this whole sprawling company. Okay. But I worked for the website, Noisy, uh, where, where, yeah, I wrote about heavy metal and country music. And um, had never really thought about myself as someone who could join a union, because as far as I was concerned, like, I just read about music on the internet. Like, there's not a union for that. But turns out, there is. And we organized. And I kind of shifted my focus away from music and more towards politics and labor. And to the point where uh, by the time I got laid off in 2019, I decided, okay, I'm just going to try to do this and be a full-time labor reporter. And it worked. And um, yeah, I will say I'm from a, like a blue collar union family, like steel workers, operating engineers, construction workers, all up and down. And my family were much more impressed when I told them I was writing about unions than when I was writing about death metal. So that was a win. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And you're from the East Coast. And, yeah, I'm from rural South Jersey in an area called the Pine Barrens, okay. which is like a very, uh, basically it's a big old nature preserve that kind of looks and feels like if you carved off a slice of Kentucky or Alabama and dropped it in the middle of New Jersey. So I was oh. very, uh, I'm a country girl, even if I live in South Philly now. All right. And so you wrote a book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, and you start all the way back to to sort of the 1700s. And uh, I'd like to begin our conversation, if we could, that first factory strike of 1824 was in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And what brought these young immigrant women to to go head to head with with upper management? Well, at that point in history, it was kind of before uh, the mills in New England 
began hiring immigrant workers at that point, it was mostly like these New England farm girls, like American born white women who were lured to the mills and, and shown it was shown to them as a kind of opportunity. Like you can go see the world and make your own money and be a little bit independent from your family. And women didn't have a lot of options at that time. Like it was basically get married or live with your family forever or just completely live in poverty. Like it, well, there wasn't a lot of uh, career fairs going on in the 1800s. So these factories seemed cosmopolitan and an opportunity yeah. for them to grow as yeah. individuals. Where women could make their own money. And, you know, so women, young women move there in droves and they work in these factories and they realized pretty quickly that what they'd basically been sold a bill of goods. Like they were overworked. They were crowded in these dormitories. They were policed by factory employees. They were paid very little. The working conditions were dire. They were breathing in these fibers. There's no ventilation. It, basically, they were dealing with a lot of the same things that factory workers deal with now. And they decided, okay, well, we need to do something about this. And they started to organize and they started to strike and they started to form organizations and, and uh, put together newspapers and agitate. Like they, they did, they did something about it. They saw something that wasn't fair and wasn't okay. And they did something in 1824, which is, it's just incredible because the way that society was structured at that time, women kind of weren't allowed to do anything. Nobody thought that we were really worth thinking about in, in outside of the role of wife and mother and daughter until you became somebody's wife. And these women really just were way ahead of the curve when it comes to advocating for workers' rights and shorter work days. Like it's the, the book is full of a lot of stories like that. People that were way ahead of their time, way ahead of what was expected of them or what was thought to be possible. And they just did it anyway. And and I'll have to say that it does seem like women are constantly at the forefront of these labor movements. And all through your book, I was just, you know, just so uh, uh, inspired and enlightened into what a strong force uh, the the women's movement within organized labor has been. And uh, how do you? Why do you think that is? And, and again, I apologize for saying it, originally it was immigrant women in in the uh, in in those mills. Once those homegrown American girls became dissatisfied, the upper management got dismissive of them. Then they started to bring in the immigrant yeah. workers from Ireland and from the Netherlands and Poland and other places. That, yeah, that's and from Canada. Like that's that's typically how it's worked in this country, right? Like when like when a group of white workers who were born here are dissatisfied and start taking action, the bosses think, oh well we can split them up, we can weaken them, we can bring in workers who are even more vulnerable and have less options and less of a leg to stand on and exploit them. And we'll keep winning. But throughout history, that has consistently backfired in their faces. <laughs> but in terms of the role of women, like it was really important to me in this book to focus really heavily on women and non-binary people because that's like we're we don't get as much attention as men do when it comes to these sweeping historical epics. Like a lot of people know about Cesar Chavez as they should, but do they know about Dolores Huerta? Do they know about Maria Marino or Emma Teneyuka? Probably not. And those women were working just as hard, if not harder, because they had to overcome the sexism and misogyny and the constraints that are placed on women who work, especially if they're mothers or you know, they're taking care of other family members. Like uh, women's work, <laughs> the, the, the work of being a woman is hard enough, right? But then when you add on wage labor and social expectations and dealing with 
just all the different kinds of oppression that women workers deal with. Like, of course, we've been out in the forefront. Whether or not people listened or took it seriously or got out of the way is another question. But they did it anyway. And that's that's why we are where we are. Like, obviously, there's a lot, a lot further we need to go. But we're only here because of women. Right. And, and another one of those um, paramount uh, figures in the labor movement, Lucy Parsons and the mm. Haymarket Affair is, is another chapter as I was reading through your book. I was just, just blown away at what, what shook out in Chicago back in 1886 when the workers uh, who were striking for, for an eight-hour work day. And they met a tremendous amount of resistance, and from the from the factory owners and uh, the, the 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 corporate bosses of that that time. And they also had a lot of the politicians, the police force, you know, kind of aiding their union busting efforts. And then along comes Lucy Parsons and a group that was uh, eventually known as the uh, the Haymarket Eight. And what can you tell our listeners about their story? Uh, there's so many layers to that. Lucy Parsons is someone that even when I sat down and thought, okay, I'm going to write a book. She was one of the first people that came to mind, like, okay, I have to write about Lucy because she was, she was this mysterious figure that kind of obscured her own background because she, like historical research has shown that she was probably a mixed race black woman who was born enslaved in Virginia and had a really interesting life that eventually landed her in Chicago, married to a former Confederate soldier turned socialist named Albert Parsons. And they became very deeply enmeshed in the Chicago radical political community. They started organizing. She helped found unions. She was part of organizing campaigns. But her real calling was as an agitator, as a speaker and a writer. She was out there preaching for revolution while other people in her circle were organizing factory workers or organized around the eight-hour day. And as part of this whole big revolutionary push towards Really, what a better world, a shorter workday. The, the big slogan that erupted during that time was eight hours for rest, eight hours for work, eight hours for what we will. And at that point, people were used to working 10, 12, 14 hour days. An eight hour day was this, it was seen as this absolutely utopian pie in the sky dream. But the people fought for it. And there are a couple of different uh, political undercurrents happening at the same time. And at the, the moment when these Reaper works, uh, workers were out on strike. There was a big mass meeting in Haymarket Square in Chicago one night, and a bunch of these radicals came up and they spoke. Lucy and her husband weren't there. They were out with their kids, but they were they were part of the, the, the anarchist socialist community in Chicago. And so when something happened at the rally, a bomb was thrown by someone, they still don't know who, and chaos erupted. Some police officers were hurt. A lot of workers were hurt. It turned into this whole circus where the people in charge wanted to find someone to scapegoat. And they chose these seven anarchists who most of them were actually involved in labor. Most of them were Jewish immigrants or second or second generation. They were painted as these like demonic, destructive figures, whereas these people were just trying to organize factory workers and shorten the workday. A lot of BS happened along the way, but essentially those most of them were hanged. Including yeah, there Lucy were four husband. of them, including Lucy Parsons' uh, husband. Yeah, her husband, Albert, was, was hanged. Was and, killed. Yeah, a couple other had their sentences commuted, and one killed himself in jail. And Lucy, she she took it almost in stride. She spent the rest of her life advocating for workers and for revolution and for the world that she and her husband had fought for. And she was a complicated figure because she, she did not present herself as a black woman. She... Told people she was of like Spanish descent. 
she didn't really try to organize within the black community. She focused on white factory workers. Her family life was pretty complicated. Like she was just such a fascinating character who wasn't, it wasn't just a good guy, bad guy sort of situation. And there's so many people in the book who fall into that same category, right? Because people, even if they're heroes, they're still human. And that was one of the most interesting parts of research in the book, just finding just finding out new things about my heroes and reevaluating how how I feel about them, how I feel about what they did, and if I still think it was all worth it. And most of the time it was. Now, quick break in the action for a word from our sponsor. Grit Nation is supported by the Martinez Tool Company. Veteran-owned and made in the USA, Martinez Tools deliver when it comes to quality, durability, and design. From titanium-handled hammers with interchangeable heads and grips to rapid squares with accuracy unparalleled in the industry, Martinez Tools are built for the building trades professional who demands the most out of their tools. For more information, be sure to visit their website at martinestools.com today. Martinez Tools, built tough and built to last a lifetime. And now back to the show. Sure, there was a lot of blood spilt uh, you know, to, to get us where we are today, where so many of us, I think, take for granted within the organized labor community. And myself being part of the UBC, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America and Canada, we've been around since 1881. Our organization laid its charter in 1881. You know, five years later, here's the Haymarket uh, affair where where uh, 11, you know, in that bomb, 11 died, over 70 were, you know, injured and hurt. Four people were hanged during that event to, to strike for something as basic as an eight-hour day, which was uh, a few um, episodes back, I talked with Katrina Onstad, which was almost the catalyst for getting two days off in a row, the weekend. And she wrote a book called The Weekend Effect. And that sort of laid the foundation for, again, eight hours to work, eight hours to sleep, and eight hours to what you will. And these stories are so important for, for people to understand. And that's why I'm so appreciative that you know, you're taking, you've taken your time to write a book that's a, so easy to, to digest. And um, one of the Absolutely. more interesting, again, all labor history uh, is, is interesting, but some of the more interesting uh, figures, personalities in the, uh, the struggle for labor, again, another very famous woman, Mother Jones. Mm, and Mother Jones came about, uh, really hit a lot of no, notoriety in 1914 with the uh, Colorado Coldfield movement. And then finally, the uh, the Ludlow Massacre. God, that's a painful one, right? Like the Ludlow Massacre was just absolutely brutal. And it's it just shows, like you said, how much blood has been spilled to get us even a little bit closer to a better world uh, during this really bitter conflict between coal miners and coal bosses in Colorado. Uh, actually, Mother Jones was in prison at the time of the massacre because public officials heard she was coming because if there was a conflict in the coal fields, if workers needed her, Mother Jones was coming. She was a rabble rouser. She was ready yeah. to fight for those workers' rights. She was a hellraiser, as self-described. <laughs> I mean, the title of the book, Fight Like Hell, comes from her. And so she was she was a force and the workers loved her and they listened to her. And so that certainly would not do. So they the, they locked her up and she had to hear about this massacre, you know, after the fact when coal bosses sent their goons into a coal miners camp and just massacred a bunch of miners and their families. Yeah, 21. 21 died in that Ludlow massacre. And again, most of them, from what I understand, were uh, from from uh, reading were, were women and children. 
And those were the company goons that came in and did that. The Colorado National Guard was brought in again to suppress this workers organizing for for safer working conditions, possibly better pay, better yeah. living conditions. The most basic requests turn demands like let us organize, pay us a little better, make it a little safer. It, the bar is so low. The bar was so low then. And even now it's, re- it's pretty low. And you think about the coal miners in Alabama who went on strike for over a year. They're not even asking for a better contract. They're asking for a return to a previous contract that wasn't as terrible as the one they got saddled with a few years ago. Like it's, it is truly incredible to see like through research and even just through living through labor now to see how much greed has propelled these really horrible bloody events like if bosses were not quite so greedy a lot of lives would not have been lost but here we are and so that brings us to 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 more modern day in your book you know, again, starts in the the 1700s and brings us to modern day down in Bessemer, Alabama. You've done some reporting down there about the uh, the workers wanting to organize within Amazon. We've had recently the uh, the workers up in is it Staten Island where the yeah, Amazon warehouse were successful in their campaign. So you get to travel around and see a lot of just modern day bottom up organizing campaigns. And what's what's inspirational? Uh, that you're seeing, Kim, and and how do you use these stories when you talk to people to, I guess, enlighten them or inspire them or motivate them that reforms and change can be made? I'm just always in such awe of the power of the workers themselves. I mean, union infrastructure is very useful and the resources are helpful, but ultimately you don't need, uh, well, as workers and and Staten Island just showed, you don't need to work with an established institution to win, to advance the cause, to organize your coworkers. Like all you really need to do is talk to people and relate to them and listen to them, listen to their concerns and show that you're on the same team, that you're part of the same struggle, that you want the same things. It seems like such a basic organizing principle, but it seems like it, it might've been kind of left by the wayside in recent years when you know, there, there's this idea that there's a specific way you need to run an election or run a union drive or organize a workplace. And if you deviate from that, you're doomed. Obviously, that's not the case. And I think the ALU, the Amazon Labor Union, what they did is going to be a very inspiring example for a whole new generation. And I feel so lucky that I'm able to witness it and to talk to folks and just to learn more about these worker stories, because that's the whole point of all of this. Every story is a labor story. And it's it's just a historic time to be alive. It's, it's I mean, it's the most excited I've been about the future of the movement in a long time. And I'm only 34, but still, there's people a lot older than me that are feeling the same way. So that's got to mean something. There's definitely an, an upswell in uh, unionism in the country right now. And I think people are beginning to become aware that this corporate greed, this unchecked corporate greed that is being enabled by a lot of our um policies brought forth by the government are, are enabling these people to get away with with these egregious acts that take it out on the on the working middle class stiff and it's it's really unfortunate and and it's about time that that we begin to wake up and understand that yeah it's we need to push back this episode of grit nation is proudly supported by the carpenters local 271 based in eugene oregon thanks to their generosity the hard-working men and women of the local 271 can now sport an official I've Got Grit high-visibility t-shirt. This U.S.-made garment is produced by ImagePoint of Waterloo, Iowa, 
and features the American flag and the newly designed Grit Nation logo. I have to say it looks really sharp, and I'm pleased as punch to have their support. If your local, business, or organization is interested in collaborating with Grit Nation, the Building Trades podcast, I'd be happy to hear from you. Grit Nation is proud to support those who support the blue-collar trades people of America and Canada. And now back to the show. In writing the book, did you have a particular favorite chapter or personality that you you came across that was really inspiring for you? A chapter that really, they're all, of course, I love them all. They're all my babies. But um, I really connected personally to the chapter on disabled workers. Okay. Because that's something, because I'm disabled and like a lot of people I love are disabled. And that's something that I hadn't necessarily seen connected before, like the disability rights movement and the labor movement. And I knew there had to be something there, but it wasn't until I started researching that I realized just how deeply intertwined those two movements have been since the beginning and continue to be. And a little bit more intentionally now, I think, as people in the move, in various movements have started to realize how intersectional those struggles really are. And like, even when I was covering, when I was thinking about the war in that strike, I was writing about in that chapter of, uh, disabled coal miners in Appalachia who had been, you know, laid out with black lung, seeing them in the sixties organize against the the will of their union, which was then run by Tony Boyle, this corrupt UNWA kind of gangsterish figure. They went out on wildcat strikes and held petitions and caused a whole lot of hell just trying to get the benefits they needed because they had just been ravaged by the job they were doing. And one of the big themes of the, the, of that chapter, I guess, is these kind of two-pronged issues that disabled workers have had to deal with. First, you know, the things that everyone deals with on the job, you know, dealing with wages and safety and respect, all the things that every worker needs. But for a very long time, disabled folks couldn't even get jobs. Like, we weren't even allowed or welcomed into the workforce at all because there's no accessibility, because of discrimination. Before uh the section 504 act was passed in the 70s i believe like there wasn't any anti-discrimination legislation for disabled people they could just say oh you can't work here and, and, and i apologize the 504 is that the uh, ada american um, so with disabilities se- act no so this is section 504 i believe the 1977 rehabilitation act is it gets a little yeah like a little weedy but um yeah like there's basically a provision of that law that made it, it made it illegal to discriminate against disabled people. I think when it comes to uh, like federally funded uh, businesses or institutions or whatever. And there was a huge movement around getting the government to actually enforce those regulations because it would have cost them a little bit of money and they didn't want to do that. It took the work of disabled activists holding sit-ins and occupations and protests and talking to Congress to force them to do that. And throughout that struggle, they were supported by people in the labor movement. The Nationalist Union provided transportation for disabled folks when they were coming to to speak to Congress because public transportation wasn't accessible. They couldn't get on the bus to go see the senators. Uh, The Black Panthers helped feed the people that occupied a federal building in San Francisco, like as a part of this protest. Like there are so many intersections there. And it was just really heartening to see that, you know, like women, like people of color, like queer people, disabled people have been part of the labor struggle since the very beginning. And I'm just glad I got to kind of show that a little bit, show that, you know, my people have been out there too. 
So your book addresses the, the history of labor. Kim, in your opinion, where do you see the future of labor going? It feels like the future is pretty bright. You know, obviously we still have a lot of issues and a lot of reasons why it's why the movement is weaker than it was, you know, when my dad first joined 40 years ago or whatever. But, you know, just the, the amount of enthusiasm around big public union drives like we're seeing at Starbucks, the Amazon win, I think there's been a shift in consciousness throughout the working class and specifically in maybe younger generations of workers that they do have options. They are powerful. If they work collectively, they can achieve these big, important goals. Like there is power in a union. And I think a whole new generation is waking up to that fact because for a really long time, unions maybe weren't in the public, uh, the public eye, unless there was a strike or somebody was mad at teachers or, you know, not a lot of great press, but that has changed a lot in the past few years. And I'm just really excited to see where it goes next. Yeah, I'm. I am as well. I like to tell my uh, my apprentices at the uh, the regional training center that I work at, PNCI, that you know if you don't know where you came from, you don't appreciate where you are, and you won't understand what it means when when someone tries to take that away. We really have to dig into our roots and understand the struggles that were made to get us to to again. I hate to say it, but take take a lot of things for granted, and but but value those and and be able to defend them and like your book says, fight like hell when someone tries to take them away. So Kim Kelly, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where would people go to find out more about you and your work? I'm very active on Twitter at Grim Kim. And I also have an Instagram that I, I, where I post book updates. And um, yeah, I'm always writing. So if you just Google around a little bit, you can probably see what else I'm up to. No rest for the wicked, right? All right. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show today. Thank you so much for a great conversation. I appreciate it. My guest today has been Kim Kelly, author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, which is now available wherever you buy books. For more information to help you dive deeper into the subject, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode or visit the Grit Nation website at gritnationpodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Joe Cadwell reminding you to work safe, work smart, and stay union strong. I, I tell you, I, I, your book, I'm loving it. I'm, I, really? I apologize, I haven't finished it yet, but I am definitely it's enjoying <laughs> the, um, the the structure of it and and the style of writing, and it's just uh, it's just so interesting, you know. And and being a person that you know has been around the labor industry uh, for for 25 years now as a member of the Carpenters Union, I'm so appreciative of just having a more in depth understanding of the history of, of labor that that you were able to do in clear, concise terms. So thank you. Oh, I'm so happy. I structured it like a kind of a choose your own adventure because I figure not everyone has time to sit down and read like a 300 page book, but right. having it in like little bite-sized sections, you can oh, yeah. kind of open it up and meet someone new no matter when you're reading it.